But right now we're going to be reading from uh, the book of Matthew. We've been, as a church, walking through the Gospel of Matthew, which is a part of the Bible that talks about the life, teaching, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We've spent most of last year going through bit by bit. We had a bit of a break over January uh, and the last few weeks for our vision series, and we're jumping back into that, and we're going to be in the book of Matthew all the way up to Easter now. And the verses we're looking at today are really fitting based on this day of celebrating some of the children in our family. So it's from Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Well, good morning again, and thank you so much for being here with us as we um, dedicate these kids, as we open God's Word together. And I think uh, whether you are, whether you wouldn't describe yourself as particularly religious or spiritual, or whether you're someone who would identify as someone who follows Jesus, what Jesus has to say in this passage about following Him, about becoming like a child, has relevance to. And the reason for that is that as we get older, we become a lot harder to impress, don't we? One of the things that having kids in a, in a community like this helps us with is it's a reminder of kind of how we used to respond to things. There are very few contexts in an increasingly kind of individualistic and specialised society where adults and kids mix together. But one of the blessings of having them around is they remind you of how filled with wonder you can actually be. Just recently, we, our, our Boxing Day plans got cancelled because of a you know, COVID outbreak and all that sort of thing. So we ended up doing Boxing Day in January. And so the kids um, kind of knew that Christmas was over, but there were some more presents coming. And, uh, and this one was the one that was coming. We knew what it was, and we knew it was going to blow their tiny minds. And so in late January, we kind of gathered together with the family, and they, they opened up their grandfather's present, which was probably the only way to describe it was like a, a jumping castle mixed with a water park all in one. And so the size of this thing would be about this little stage bit that I'm standing on, but about yay high. And even though it was late in the afternoon when we got home, it was getting close to bedtime, they were so overstimulated that we basically just couldn't say no as parents to setting this thing up. And so we set it up, wound them up, and off they went. Now, even after a day of just being overhyped and overstimulated and overtired, they, just, they dug deep into their resources and found another gear and just went crazy for like for two full hours, just constantly going on this thing. But my favourite moment was when one of our kids at one point stopped and came up to me and said, Dad, this is the best day of my life. <laughs> Which being that young is potentially entirely true. But then he said, I had to pinch myself to know that it was real. And I thought, it just takes so little for a child to be about as happy as a human being can be before bursting. It, is like, it just takes so little at that age to actually be so pumped up and so excited and so happy about things. But as we get older, it's a lot harder to impress us, isn't it? When you're a kid, you would wake up at like 4.30 to get up, you know, 4.30 the day before to anticipate your presence. But as you get older, Christmas becomes another thing, even maybe a, a potential stress point in the year. As a kid, your birthday, you look forward to it for months. But as, as you get older, maybe it even becomes something that you don't look forward to especially. Kids are so amazed by everything. It's so easy for them to be filled with wonder. Over the last 
introduce our kids to Star Wars. I got to be the, the one to introduce it to them, like, like I wrote it almost, right? And again, it just blew their minds. Kids are so easily filled with wonder. In fact, when we used to run youth camps at a previous church I was at, one of the things that, that older volunteers would remark upon was just how much energy and passion kind of the kids had, which was in some ways a sad comment on kind of feeling themselves a bit more weighed down with responsibility and burden and kind of pining after that time. Now, it's true. As you grow up, you do need to grow up. You do need to become responsible. Adults who fail to grow up become a real curse for the people around them. Anyone who tries to sort of Peter Pan their way through their 20s and beyond ends up pulling other family members or spouses or whatever into their lack of responsibility and it becomes not amusing and endearing but actually very difficult. You do have to grow up. But how can you grow up in all the right ways whilst not growing old in all the wrong ways? How do we grow up and still maintain that childlike wonder well, Jesus has a word for us here in Matthew 18. A way to grow up in maturity, to be in a world where there is real problems and real issues and real evil to be reckoned with, and yet to maintain that childlike wonder and self-forgetfulness and humility. In fact, Jesus is going to say, unless you turn and become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. You cannot be one of my people. But the reverse is also true, that having a relationship with God is what maintains our youthfulness forever, that childlike wonder. I'm going to pray. Father, as we open your word, we pray that we would understand who you are. And we pray that you would make us, even as adults, as children. Father, we pray that we would understand what Jesus has to say to us and the weight of all that he has to say, knowing that it's the very truth of God. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, as Jacob mentioned, we're picking up in this book of Matthew where we left off last year. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible or the books of the Bible, this particular book is called Matthew because it was written by Matthew. Not a heaps creative title, but he was a tax collector. Creativity wasn't really his thing. But Matthew was a follower of Jesus. And before following Jesus, he was a tax collector who, at that time, was basically an extortionist working for the government. So he was not a good guy. He meets Jesus, Jesus says, follow me, and he does it. And he is so compelled by the life and truth of Jesus that he wants to write it down for everyone to understand. So he records a biography of Jesus, Jesus' birth, his life, his, finally his death and his resurrection, and everything that Jesus taught and ministered about. And so that's what we're moving through. And the section we're up to is a section where Jesus teaches about what it means to follow him. But it's important to know that just before this, something significant has happened. In the section just before the one that we're about to dive into now, Jesus has revealed to just three of his disciples. He takes three guys, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them to a mountain and he reveals to them his power in a way that shows them that Jesus was not just a human, but he was God in human flesh. And they're the only ones who know about this at this point. And that's important for the discussion that breaks out right at the beginning of this chapter. Have a look at how it starts. In Matthew 18 it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples come to him and they're wondering who's the greatest. Now this is potentially happening because three of them have just been shown something particularly special and maybe it's that Jesus is kind of favoring them among the disciples. So they're worried about that and they're starting to wonder, okay, this Jesus guy, this movement is kind of gathering momentum. He's clearly going to be a powerful person. And they're starting to wonder, all right, who's, who are going to be the deputies? When Jesus kind of rises to power, who around him is going to get the top spots? And so they come to Jesus and they ask him this question saying, who's, who's the greatest? Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus, looking at them, sees this as an opportunity, a teaching moment. And so what he does is he calls to himself a child. Now the section just before here, Jesus was teaching one of his disciples, Peter, about whether or not they're supposed to give to those who are collecting taxes. And potentially he was teaching him in Peter's house. So it might even be the case that this is Peter's child, but we're not told here in the text. All we're told is that there is a kid there and Jesus says, come over here. And he stands this child in the middle of them. And he says to them, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He says, if you want to follow me, if you want to know what it means to be the greatest, to actually follow me, you need to become like this child. Now, what is it that Jesus means by that? Obviously, they cannot literally become like a child. In what way are they meant to be like a child? Well, the first thing that we do need to clear up is what he doesn't mean by this. It's important to understand that when Jesus says you need to become like a child, he doesn't mean you need to infantilize your intellect, that you need to become basically a simpleton. This is how some people have characterized what it means to have maybe any religious faith, but particularly the Christian religious faith. In fact, one critic des described faith as a blind belief in the improbable despite, in spite of the evidence. And it's tricky. Maybe, maybe you have met Christians who say they follow Jesus, who embody that, who seem to be unwilling or unable to deal with key objections or questions when it comes to the Christian faith, who seem to espouse this kind of blind faith. And maybe it's the case that they overlook plain science or they even seem to be really against any kind of rigorous intellectual thought. And so it might actually vibe with your experience. That, yeah, okay, so Jesus probably means here, in fact, to follow him, you kind of have to infantilize your intellect. But that's not what Jesus means here. Not least of all because only a few chapters earlier when he sends out his disciples, he commands them saying, you must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Meaning you are going to need to use your mind. He says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. You need to be switched on. You need to be thinking people. Jesus claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, know the truth and the truth will set you free. To follow him is to live a life based on the truth, not in denial of obvious truth. So this is not what Jesus means when he says you need to become like a child to follow him. So what does he mean then? Jesus is saying you're going to need the childlike humility that would honestly assess yourself in light of who God is. To have the kind of humility to see yourself with accuracy in light of who God is and what he has done. It's funny how honest and humble kids can be, isn't it? We were watching the Australian Open recently and all of us were kind of sitting on the couch watching them play tennis and one of our kids, looking at one of the tennis players, said, wow, she's got really big front teeth. And we kind of gasped and both of us, my wife and I, jumped on her at the same time. We're like, 
you can't, that is so mean, like da da da. To which he replied, what? I've got big front teeth. And we realized at that moment that it had kind of exposed our prejudices, not his. Kids have no aesthetic value attached to the size of your front teeth. They, for them, it's just a plain fact. They're like, look, you're going to go through this phase where you have adult-sized teeth in a child-sized head, and it's just, it is what it is. It's just what it's going to be. And has no particular value attached to that. They don't care. And it's kind of refreshing, isn't it, sometimes, just how honest and humble kind of kids can be about themselves. They don't, they don't care that much about greatness or status. They're happy just to say it as it is. Jesus, to follow him, is going to require that kind of humble, honest self-assessment of yourself in light of God. Because in this very gospel, and in the gospel recordings that we have of Jesus, he says things like, I've come to seek and save the lost. He says things like, I've come to call sinners and not the righteous to repentance. He says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And so to follow Jesus means to say, I'm lost and I actually need saving. It's to say, I'm a sinner and I've done wrong against God and against others. And it's to say that things were so bad that actually Jesus needed to come and die in my place so that I could be restored to relationship with God. That requires a certain amount of humility and honesty in our self-assessment in light of who God is. That's why Jesus says, Truly, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. But the beautiful truth of this is that if you are just honest like a child before God, he accepts you not because of what you can do or how you can make it up to him, but simply because he will love you as his own child. You know, Jesus told a story to explain what it's like to come back to God. You may have heard phrases like the prodigal son, kind of describing someone who was wayward and then came back to whatever it is. But it came from this story that Jesus tells, which has been called since then the prodigal son. And the story starts like this. Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons, and one of them came to him and asked his father for his inheritance early. Now, that should be a shocking statement in an ancient Near Eastern culture. You can tell that Jesus is telling a story because if that really happened in his day and time, the story would have gone like this. A man had two sons. One of them asked for the inheritance. Then the man had one son. That's how it would have gone in Jesus' day. You did not come and ask your parents for their inheritance early because it was like saying, you're dead to me, I want your stuff, and I don't want relationship with you. And then Jesus goes on. He says this son takes all the money, the inheritance, even though his dad has been humiliated, having to divide up his property and sell part of it so he can give money to his child who doesn't want him anymore. He says he goes off and he spends it and he ends up at absolute rock bottom. He's spent all the money, he's trashed his life and himself, and he decides, you know what, I'm going to go back to my dad. He is working with pigs, trying to earn money just to live, and instead he says, I'm going to go back and work for my father. I'm not going to ask to be a son. I'll just go back and work as one of his workers. And so as he's going back to, to meet his dad, he's rehearsing a speech in his head about how bad he's been and all of this in, in the hope that his dad will just let him work for him. And as he's coming down the road, the father runs to him and embraces him and kisses him and welcomes his son home and loves him so much that he throws a party. And the point of the story is, that coming back to God is like that. You don't come back to God and he says, wait outside and tell me all the wrong things you've done so that I can have a list so I can bring them up every time you annoy me in the future. God doesn't say, come back and work off your debt and then I will accept you. 
No, he says, if you come back like a wayward son, he'll just accept you with open arms and welcome you into his family, no matter who you are or what you've done. That's the gospel. Jesus says that's the childlike humility that's required to enter the kingdom of God, to be one of God's people. It requires no status, no intellect, no achievements, no money, but simply to say, God, I need you, and he will accept you in. And really, this is what we're looking for, isn't it? Something that would teach us to accept that we are both flawed but incredibly loved. If you raise a child and only lavish upon them love and affection in the positive, we know what happens with a child like that. They can grow up to be very self-concerned, almost narcissistic. If you are unable to accept responsibility for the things you've done wrong, if you're constantly blaming other people, if you're always the victim, that is not a healthy, rounded way to grow up. But on the flip side, if you raise a child only pointing out their flaws, constantly reminding them of how flawed they are and what a problem they are, it's crushing. They'll grow up living with constant shame and fear. But in the gospel, we see that we are both very flawed and very loved. That we are sinners who are loved by an all-loving and forgiving God. And it's incredible news. And you know what? I, just in, in applying this, for you parents, this is such a refreshing word for tired parents. The gospel is such refreshment for tired parents. Firstly, it's because you can see yourself rightly as a parent. You are just a parent. You are not God. I know that seems obvious, right? <laughs> but let me get into this. I remember one time in, in disciplining one of our kids, I was sending them to bed, which can, if you know what that's like, it can be an epic challenge. But, um, but in sending them to bed, I'd reminded them a couple of times. And then on the final time, I heard this voice call out from the bedroom. And I heard my daughter say, Dad, you're not God. You're just my father. And at that point, I thought, that is a very sharp theological point. <laughs> and I also thought, but do what I say and go to bed. <laughs> but as much as at that moment she was in some ways trying to be cheeky or funny, it is a, it is a truth that if you are not aware of it, it can actually seep into your parenting. The gospel means that you are deeply flawed and deeply loved. You, are, you come to Jesus like a child with needs also. And there are a lot of companies who can make a lot of money by trying to make you think that you can be God in place of a parent. That if you buy the right products at the right times and give your kids just the right opportunities, you can make a life for them that is perfectly secure and happy. And so you take it alone on a $9,000 stroller that has GPS tracking and side airbags and subliminally plays Mozart through micro-vibrations because if you don't, your child will be permanently ruined. And it's all built on the idea that you can basically be God for your kids, that you are all-powerful, you can protect them from any and every harm, that you are all-knowing and you know exactly what to say and when to say it at the right time to do it to see that they develop just perfectly. But it's also the fear that if I do one wrong thing, I'm going to ruin them forever. And it's exhausting. But the gospel means that you aren't God, you are just a child of God. And that means a couple of things. It means you can just enjoy your kids for the gift that they are. It also means that you can apologize. You can do the really powerful thing as a parent of being able to admit in front of your kids when you did something wrong. Because Have I checked out there? No, I'm back. Surprise. It's an amazing gift that you can give to your kids. But it also means that 
like oftentimes this can be the pattern with parents, isn't it? That parenting, capital P parenting, can become such a serious business. And everyone is so serious. Parents groups can be a very serious place, can't they? Where there's a lot of veiled talk about what you're doing for your kid, but the underlying thing is, are you really a good parent? Like, you're doing some kind of sleep training, they're like, oh, you're still doing that. Oh, okay, well, you've probably permanently damaged your kids forever, but that's cool. <laughs> it can be very passive aggressive. But it can be such serious business, because it's almost like the weight of God is upon you to raise this child perfectly, rather than just saying, you know what? They're going to make mistakes like I have, they're going to be flawed and very loved just like I am, and so I can relax as a parent. Actually have fun. And to raise your kids, to teach them that they too are loved, that you will love them even when they sin or even when they mess up, that you're going to love them no matter what. The gospel parents. But if you're also a believer here and you are a follower of Jesus, I want to ask you this question. Are you growing up in childlike humility or are you growing old and boring? Do you know as we get older, like we do get harder to impress. We get bored of things. And the reason that we do and the reason that we miss the gifts that life often brings us, that God is bringing us, is because we start to feel entitled to things. The truth is that as you get older as a Christian, you should be getting younger in humility and in a sense of gratitude and wonder as you know the gospel and as you apply it to life. Because the thing that kills the enjoyment of life is a sense of entitlement. The longer you have something, the more you feel like it belongs to you and that you deserve it. I remember one comedian just illustrating the human propensity to feel entitled to things. He was talking about getting on a flight and just marvelling at the miracle that you could be travelling in a flying chair at however many thousand feet. And while they're in there, this clip sort of did the rounds for a while, you might be familiar with it. While he's in the air, an announcement comes over the speakers. And they say, guys, we have something called Wi-Fi. And you can use it in a plane for like the first time ever. And so everyone gets their devices out and connects to the Wi-Fi. And a few minutes in, the guy next to him has been tapping away at his laptop. And the Wi-Fi drops out. And he closes his laptop lid and he goes, oh. And the guy reflects, he's like, just imagine feeling entitled to something that five minutes ago you didn't even know existed. <laughs> like, that's, that's miraculous. You cannot underestimate the human propensity to feel entitled to things. But the truth is that's what kills the wonder of life, that we receive it as though we deserve good things and that we even need more and we are constantly looking out to what everyone else has and what we're missing out on rather than just saying, man, I don't deserve anything and God has been so good to me. At this stage in a pandemic, we should be so thankful for things that we have, and yet we're not. There are so many things to be thankful for. Can I encourage you that if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to be a student of grace, to study the gospel and grace. In fact, we started some Bible readings today. Our group just simultaneously all chose the... There's four Bible reading tracks, and one of them is particularly on grace. And for whatever reason, maybe it's the need of the moment... Everyone felt like that's what right now we actually need to be doing. It's just studying the grace of the gospel. How good God has been to us. How forgiving, how loving. But be a student of grace that you might, as you grow older, grow in childlike wonder because God has loved you and saved you despite your sin. Let me finish with this quote from G.K. Chesterton. He was an author and writer at the beginning of the 20th century. 
writing on why it is that we need to, like God, enjoy the same things over and over again, and yet with wonder. He says, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. Just ask any of the parents today about that. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be out of automatic necessity that he makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, but our Father is younger than we. Jesus says to follow him, to enter the kingdom of heaven, we must become like children. To have that childlike humility, to trust in him and to know that we are flawed and loved. May we be a grateful and joyful people. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Jesus. That he was sent as a man to die in our place on the cross. To take away our sin and shame, to make us new. And that we might know your love. And Father, we pray that you would keep us with childlike humility. That as we reflect on your goodness and your kindness to us, that it would free us from the tyranny of entitlement and give us a sense of wonder and gratitude at the world. May these parents raise these kids with a sense of gratitude and love to you and raise them in the joy and hope of the gospel. And Father, may we do all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.